1: If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, the life and complex legacy of Japan's recently assassinated former leader, Shinzo Abe. The assassination last month of Shinzo Abe shocked the world. To discuss how Japan will move forward from this, we're hearing from two specialists on the nation's culture and politics. Here's more from our host, the journalist and broadcaster, Philippa Thomas.
1: On the 8th of July, in one of those sudden seismic news events, Japan's former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, was shot in broad daylight on the streets of Western Japan, where he was giving a speech ahead of elections that weekend. At home and around the world, tributes poured forth for the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. Internationally, Abe was known for his strides in foreign policy. He established a close relationship with the US in both the Obama and Trump administrations. He also had more in-person encounters with Russian President Vladimir Putin than with any other world leader. Domestically, his legacy is tied to different agendas, including his name-worthy Abenomics, a set of policies implemented to try to bring the Japanese economy out of stagnation. Shinzo Abe was also the first Japanese prime minister who didn't feel it necessary to publicly atone for Japan's previous war crimes, a readiness for neutrality which some have praised, others have criticised as denialism. So as the tremors settle, how is Shinzo Abe's legacy viewed from within Japan and around the world, and what does this mean for Japan's political future? I'm joined by two guests to help us answer these questions. Jeff Kingston is director of Asian studies at Temple University's Japan campus and joins us now from Tokyo. And here in London, we have Satona Suzuki, lecturer in Japanese and modern Japanese history at SOAS University of London. Jeff, Satona, welcome to Intelligence Squared. And Satona, may I ask you first to recall your feelings when you heard that news come through?
0: Hi, Hi, thank you for having me today. Just
1: wanted to say,
0: uh, it was just total disbelief. I just could not believe that um, that had actually happened. I just felt quite sort of numb. And so I just sort of started searching all the, you know, internet and everything. It's very difficult to head um, my head around it, really, because it, it wasn't even politically motivated. Jeff.
3: Yes, I also was incredulous. Um, Somebody messaged me a little after noontime, and I was uh, in the heart of Shibuya uh, waiting for a friend at the iconic Hachiko statue of a dog. And that's where people tend to meet up. I was looking around and everybody's heads buried in their phones. And then it's sort of like Times Square. They have these sort of ticker tape up around the buildings. And so when I saw the news on the message and I was looking up, it took a while for them to post anything. But what I first noticed was they didn't say anything about his condition. And that's when I knew he must be dead. You know, Normally, if somebody is wounded, you know, or he's on the way to hospital But when they didn't say his condition, it just seemed very ominous to me. And I did notice a lot of people seemed to be spending quite a lot of time peering into their phones, which I guess we think everybody does ordinarily anyway. But I do think it was fairly shocking to the entire nation, this barbaric act,
1: Satana, the government has published plans for a state funeral in September. This is, from the outside, extraordinarily divisive. Why is that?
0: So I think this is the second state funeral um, after second war, since first World War. The first one was also divisive, but I think Kishi said something like, because of his uh, political achievement um, at home and also diplomatic um, endeavour, he elevated Japan's position in the world. So that was their sort of reasoning. I haven't actually made up my mind about the state funeral yet, because um, it's a very complex issue, isn't it? It's about uh, security, it's about um, using taxpayers' money, all sorts of things, and also constitution as well, whether it's um, constitutionally uh, allowed. So I'm researching at the moment, so I haven't made up my mind about it, but it is very divisive. But Abe was a divisive figure, so whatever they do, it's going to be criticised either way or support it.
1: We'll be looking through this conversation at why he was so divisive and and why this is now symbolized, I guess, with the issue of whether he should be accorded a state funeral or not. Jeff, you're speaking to us from Tokyo. How much is this a matter of conversational argument?
3: The only poll I I saw about this indicated that almost half of Japanese support a state-funded funeral and 38% were opposed. And I was a bit surprised by the high level of opposition. As Satona noted, Abe was a very divisive figure. But after his assassination, um, the media coverage was very deferential, respectful. I think it created a mood in which you expected the public would rally in support. So I guess I was a little surprised about the level of opposition. Talking politics in Japan is a sure conversation stopper, but I have a group of fellow dog walkers I meet uh, almost every morning. Based on them, I think there is uh, significant doubts about going forward with a state-funded funeral. Uh, like Satona, I haven't really made up my mind. I'm certainly somebody who has you know, been a critic of Abe, and I think that from the get-go, the ruling Liberal Democratic Party has moved to politicize this assassination for political benefit. So I think maybe that's what explains some of the opposition we're seeing in the polls.
1: I suppose it is important to note that the Liberal Democrats are still in power. That current politics is in play as well as the memory of of the man and his legacy. Let's look at what he meant or what he did for the Japanese and then on the world stage. Satano, Abenomics, it was, I remember reporting on this, you know, when the, the idea of the doctrine emerged, it was this, this great way to lift Japan forward and into renewed growth. What would you say is the economic legacy of Shinzo Abe?
0: I'm not an economist, so I can't really go into details of those his policies. But uh, all I can say is that uh, he tried those three arrows of flexible fiscal policy, monetary expansion and structural reforms and all these kind of things. And I think they need to be uh, evaluated uh, separately or together too. But in the end, I don't think he... It- created an inclusive or sustainable economy. So, I mean, some people, it is also, you know, just as ABE is, it is uh, divisive people. Some people really praise it and some people really seriously criticize it, but I don't think it created sustainable economy.
3: Uh, yes, I agree with Satona that Abenomics, I think, was primarily a branding strategy, not a coherent set of economic policies. And last autumn, when current Prime Minister Kishida uh, was running for party president, he was you know, sharply critical of Abenomics for accentuating uh, the divide between haves and have-nots, disparities, and saying that it did not create a solid foundation for sustainable growth. So that's rather withering criticism from within the party. Uh, I think outside uh, in the public, it has a reputation of welfare for the wealthy, that basically the policy didn't work, household income stagnated. They were unable to reflate the economy. The Bank of Japan rigged the stock market. They own uh, nearly $500 billion worth of Japanese stocks in an effort to boost the Nikkei average. But now they're in a situation of how do you withdraw? How do you taper? Uh, So they're sort of stuck uh, in a policy corner right now. And I think a lot of people are expecting that Kishida is going to move away from Abenomics and try to do more to help people whose pocketbooks are feeling the pinch of inflation related to the war in Ukraine. I don't think there are many people out there Who are defending Abenomics and don't see it really as a significant legacy, except in a negative sense that Japan's public debt to GDP ratio is the highest in the world. And the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is 130% of GDP, also way off the charts in terms of world peers. So I think it really fizzled and didn't really have a strong positive impact.
1: Well, then let's look at another aspect of legacy, if we're considering what it is that Shinzo Abe did that made him such a noteworthy leader. I mean, in terms of foreign relations, he certainly raised... Japan's profile. And Satana, first, I think I'd like to come to Japan and the US. I mean, Shinzo Abe cultivated that relationship. I remember him being very early to see Donald Trump, for example.
0: Yes. I mean, the United States is Japan's um, treaty partner. So it is um, very logical to strengthen its ties in the Pacific, the order and everything, Uh, especially the rise of North Korea and China. He actually had a quite good sense of humour. So um, I think um, Donald Trump appreciated that. And also, I mean, he, he managed to get on well with Obama as well. So I think that's a, that's a success in a way. You, you have to get on with people on the sort of personal level as well. You have to be likeable, right? So
1: so he was a good player on the world stage from, from your point of view? I think so, yes. He knew how to play the game, as it were. Jeff, if I can pick up not only about the United States, but actually about Japan's relationship with South Korea, it didn't go so smoothly.
3: Yeah, I, I'm not sure foreign policy, his achievements were super significant. I think he stood tall for free trade, a uh, time when you know Donald Trump was pulling the plug on the TPP and he secured a trade deal with the EU. But he did stumble, as you mentioned, in relations with South Korea and also uh, largely with China. And with Korea and China, part of it has to do with territorial disputes, but also disputes over their shared history. And the situation got very grave uh, with South Korea. I think the United States put pressure on both governments to try to get over their shared past, to cut a deal on the comfort women uh, in 2015, but that deal was dead on arrival. It didn't get any traction at all in South Korean society. And the key issue was that Abe refused to issue a public apology. And so it didn't seem that this was a grand gesture along the lines of the knee fall of Willy Brandt, but was sort of a you know half-hearted gesture trying to get over it without really dealing with the pain and the scars of the shared history. And also uh, the problems mounted over forced labor. The Korean Supreme Court uh, sided with plaintiffs who demanded compensation from Japan because during the colonial era, a number of Koreans were forced to come and work in Japanese mines and factories in rather dismal conditions. Uh, and so that is also an ongoing dispute. But in what amounts to sort of a, a historical jujitsu, Japan now claims the moral high ground because the Korean government renounced the 2015 deal. And so, from the perspective of Abe and his supporters, the Koreans keep moving the goalposts. And so now the view is that the ball is in South Korea's court and the new president, Yoon, uh, has indicated that he wants to overcome this past. And his popularity is sinking rather quickly and it looks to be a very difficult situation for him to overcome.
2: Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content, and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side.
1: Satana, your thoughts on this, on on what could have been done to to smooth and improve Japan's relationship with South Korea, where do you think Shinzo Abe failed, if you do think that? I think
0: whoever is the prime minister, Japan's imperial and colonial legacies, uh, it's just so difficult to resolve. It is not just Abe's issue as a prime minister, but it's Japan's issue, really. So... You can't blame one man? I don't think so, no. But I think uh, the first time... I think Abe was... The prime minister who went abroad to visit sort of as many countries as possible, I think he visited about 88 countries or something. So he was quite proactive in trying to sort of build a relationship with uh, not just the United States, but Af- Asian African countries. But the first country, it was China or Korea, South Korea. So he thought that it was quite important, I think. Yeah, it is very complex, isn't it? Japanese imperial colonial legacies because so many different things get in the way, because it's used as a political thing as well as like collective or individual trauma or memories and also media. It is a complex issue and it is an ongoing issue, definitely. But I don't
1: think it's just on Abe. It is a complex issue. And I'm going to come back to, to the forward-looking issue Japanese uh, relationships with Beijing. But I think this is a point at which we have to discuss Shinzo Abe and whether you see him as having been appropriately neutral or or embracing denialism when it comes to Japan's past and his standing. Satana, I'd like you to pick up on that.
0: I mean, he is actually labelled as a nationalist. He's labelled as a revisionist. But I don't think he is an apologist for Japanese imperialism or sort of jingoistic nationalist. His critics would use all those words, but do you think that's not accurate? I don't say it's inaccurate, but I don't necessarily agree with it because he's a prime minister of a nation state. So his job is to fulfill the benefits or national interest of that country. But the definition of nation state is changing from uh, when Japan was sort of expanding into East Asia or Southeast Asia, Or colonizing korea or taiwan i think he tries to serve his own country but at the same time he did his best to build relationship with other countries including south korea and china so i don't think it's necessarily true that he's a songji nationalist i don't know it's difficult isn't it you have to kind of start defining those terminology in the context
1: You do. You do. Let's bring in Jeff Kingston again here, because uh, you may want to to define it for us, Jeff, but I'm sensing that you may feel somewhat differently about the way you regard Abe and Japan's past.
3: Well, Abe was a committed revisionist, which meant rewriting and rehabilitating Japan's colonial and wartime history. Uh, He came into politics in 1993, and made no bones about it, he wanted to overturn the Kono Statement, in which the Japanese government acknowledged the coercive recruitment of Korean women and the military's involvement in that. He also has written uh, in his book, uh, Towards a Beautiful Japan, how basically he thought that his grandfather, who, former Prime Minister Kishi, who at one time was a Class A war crime suspect, uh, had gotten sort of a raw deal. And he was an advocate of trying to promote a exculpatory and validating uh, narrative of Japan's shared history with Asia. So not all Japanese agree. There's plenty who don't. Prime Minister Khan on the centennial of Japanese colonialism in Korea, made a very heartfelt statement, trying to heal the wounds that went over extremely well in South Korea and showed the possibilities of extending the olive branch and to show deep contrition. And I recall on that day, they went around interviewing top politicians on the news, and Abe made a very brief remark, (laughs) calling it stupid. So I'm sorry, Abe and the revisionist have roiled the waters. He is a revisionist. He also is a strong neo-nationalist and supported institutionalized ties between the LDP and the National Association of Shrines. 80% of his cabinet members were from a very conservative lobby group called Nippon Kaigi or Japan Conference in English. So I think that these are realities of Abe. And so, yes, it's true in office, he had to tone down somewhat to be more of a statesman. But his commitment and those of his supporters was clear. And on Abe's watch, the comfort women were removed, purged from secondary school textbooks. By the end of the 1990s, they were mentioned in all of the secondary school textbooks By the end of Abe's term, only one small textbook company mentioned the comfort woman. And because they had quoted a comfort woman who disagreed with the Japanese government's official view, they had to put a disclaimer next to her testimony. So I do think. He does shoulder a lot of the blame for keeping Japan at a distance from its neighbors. And so I think that this is certainly one of the legacies uh, to overcome. And then we look now, of course, the media is probing uh, the assassination and the apparent longstanding ties between the Unification Church, the Moonies, uh, and the Abe dynasty, which started back with his grandfather, Kishi, in the 1960s. And now the media has exposed the fact that many conservative politicians had ties to the unification church. And so this story has legs. We don't really know everything now, but it is emerging that the sort of extremist dogma of the Moonies sort of overlaps that of Japan conference and revisionists. They want to restore an emperor-centered polity infused with Shintoism and patriarchy. And I don't think many Japanese share that vision. But so this is sort of a top-down elite uh, vision that resonates with the sound of one hand clapping with the Japanese people.
1: Let's pick up on what you've just brought in, Jeff, about the influence and the connection with the Unification Church, the Moonies. Um, the shooter, the gunman who killed Abe, was not, I think, a, a Moonie, but his mother had belonged to the Unification Church. And Japanese media has reported that in, in the early 2000s, she donated so much money, it bankrupted her family. There could be a strong connection here. Uh, Satana, I want to, to give you the opportunity to... Describe for us whether you think there is a malign influence here or what is the status or or what do you think we should know about the Unification Church, the Moonies and current Japan? So I think we have to put this in a historical context as well,
0: because the Moonies went, or the Unification Church, I think they have a different name. So I think in in Japan, people call it former Unification Church. But when they first came to Japan from uh, South Korea, you know, the world was divided into, uh, you know, it was during the Cold War and everybody was really scared of communism. So they thought that it was a good idea to sort of just sort of combat communism together. And I think uh, one of those headquarters was right next to Kishi, you know, Abe's grandfather's house or something. So they had some sort of connection. We are still sort of scrutinizing uh, the connection between LDP or politicians and the Moody's. So I can't really say anything for certain. But I think if it's beneficial, of course, they would use each other. You know, you can't deny the connection, definitely. But we don't simply don't know yet for sure.
1: Satano, do you think that if there is a link, uh, investigations are continuing, this could affect the views of the Japanese towards the church, the the, the the status of this church or religion in Japan?
0: The freedom of religion is guaranteed in the constitution, so it is difficult to get rid of religion. It is just how, you know, religion and politics associate with one another. It's not unconstitutional that, for example, the Moonies, the believers, followers of Moonies, um, help the political campaign.
1: It's not unconstitutional. Is it? Is it of concern to you? Is it
0: concern to me? I think it depends on what sort of religion. If it's a cult, it is a concern, isn't it? It's just what sort of relationship they have. It is a complex issue again, so I can't really sort of say it is a concern, we should stop it, but I think it's individual cases you have to look at. I mean, other political parties have connection with Soka Gakkai, the other Buddhist uh, religion as well, so that has to be Christian too. Do we have to consider everything? I think it's not a bad idea, but it's going to take a long time.
1: You're right about the complexity and that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring the two of you together for this conversation. And something I'd like us to turn to is really looking again at the impact of this assassination and what it means in terms of scrutinizing deep-seated issues. Jeff, you wanted to come in.
3: The shooter apparently nursed a grievance for the past two decades. His mother gave away the family fortune. He grew up destitute. He was unemployed. You know, a very disturbed individual. But it's emerged that a lawyer's group that has come forward to defend people who have been defrauded or built by the unification church claims that they've had nearly 34,000 consultations involving something like a billion dollars. So this group has really harmed a lot of Japanese people. And you probably recall in 1995 with the Aum Shinrikyo uh sarin gas attack on the tokyo metro i think in the wake of that the japanese people thought well the government's not doing enough to protect us from cultists and the like so i think right now it's come to the public mind it was astonishing i think for most people to read about the close ties with the Moonies and the political elite in japan it was probably a well-kept secret in I show in the, you know, the heart of you know, Japanese politics. But I think for the common person, it's like, really? I mean, these people are looked at as, you know, hardcore, you know, salesmen coercing people to buy expensive things, donate money. And the weird thing is, apparently they use colonial war guilt. They say, well, you know, your country colonized South Korea. And you treated the comfort women miserably. And so it's sort of strange to figure out how is it that people of Abe and other, you know, in his group would cozy up to a group that essentially is using a colonial era grievance as a way to leverage money out of people in Japan. But Satona's right. It's the anti-communist Cold War aspect, which I think sold them. And the fact that, for example, they don't believe in same-sex marriage, they don't believe in empowerment of women, things along those lines. So there are certain issues in which they have an overlapping uh, agenda. But the story is still percolating out. I think we'll find out more after the funeral. And I think there'll be some disturbing revelations. Right now, what we know is they provided... Volunteers for campaigns, people who'd hand out pamphlets, put up posters, but they were the leading source of funds for this South Korean based religious organization or cult, whatever you want to call it. And so they had deep pockets. So how did they manage to survive despite all of the allegations and lawsuits? People speculate that they must have found powerful protectors. Uh, and as Satona mentioned, they did change their name. And that was, what, six years ago. Uh, and that was under Prime Minister Abe. And the Minister of Education at the time, Hakabun Shimomura, was the one who uh, was in charge of the ministry that allowed them to change their name, which is sort of like, oh, well, who's going to know? We're not the Unification Church. We're the new Unification Church. You know, as if sort of it would erase this negative history.
1: I think what is becoming very clear from our conversation is the way in which clouds from the past overshadow uh, the present. And if I may, I want to put to you both the difficulty that Shinzo Abe's murder could create a martyrdom status, uh, affect the way that he is perceived, or make it difficult for those in Japanese politics today to have even the sort of conversation we're having right now. I don't want to put words into your mouths. I just, well, <laughs> Satana, I suppose I'm, I'm going to ask you first about the shock of what's happened, how you think it affects the ability to speak freely or honestly today.
0: I think initially people might, you know, because we are like emotional beings, humans, so we might feel that way. But as things start to reveal... I don't think people will sort of worship him or you will erase the opportunity to talk about those difficult things. I think we are already speaking. In Japan, I, I watch all this news and also YouTube and everything. Debates very, very lively. And it's very interesting because YouTube and things, people can say more things freely than traditional media. And younger people watch YouTube and things more than TV nowadays. So I think it's actually igniting all this sort of uh, fascinating discussions amongst young people.
1: Jeff?
3: Well, you know, his legacy is clearly hotly contested. In the wake of this barbaric act, I think that people were respectful, deferential. The media coverage bordered on fawning. But I think we've sort of turn the corner on that. I mean, all the revelations about the Moonies have, you know, been eye-opening for the Japanese public. You know, Kishida has been a little bit mealy-mouthed about, oh yeah, last fall, I was disavowing Abenomics. So he's being a little bit more careful about that. But I think that, you know, we have been reminded that when Abe stepped down, he was deeply unpopular, right? And he was resigning under a cloud of numerous scandals. And so the interesting thing is he said, you know, my greatest regret, I was unable to convince the public to support constitutional revision. So ironically, the more he pushed, the more pushback there was. There was deep distrust of him. So the interesting Kishida can say and do almost the same things as Abe, but because he has a more moderate image, people are more willing to accept it. So over the past several months, big debate, how much should Japan increase its defense spending? Abe said, we should go double it to 2%. And Kishida said, vaguely, a significant increase. Well, last week it emerged, the defense budget will increase without any maximum ceiling. Well, that sounds huge. So I think that the legacy is, was Abenomics successful? I don't think a lot of people believe that. Womenomics? No. Uh, Womanomics was an abject failure. That was just a another PR gambit to try to improve his global image. But clearly, people see through that. Uh, his diplomacy in East Asia didn't really go very far. Uh, you have to feel sympathy for him. He did manage to navigate Donald Trump, and he became Donald Trump's closest friend among global leaders, which is sort of a a bit of a poison chalice, I guess, but he did manage to do that. Uh, But if you look at the leaders that he was comfortable with, uh, Modi as well, another authoritarian. So it's not clear that Abe's striding on international stage all was positive, but Japan had continuity, right? Before him, there was a series of one year and out revolving door prime ministers. So suddenly you have a prime minister, he's handsome, a name that's relatively easy to pronounce, and he's there for eight years. So people around the world can remember him. But his biographer, Tobias Harris, if you read his book, The Iconoclast, it is deeply critical of Abe and concludes that he was a political giant, but left a very small footprint.
1: Satana, I would like us to be able to look at The prospects or the challenges for Japan today? Uh, Jeff just mentioned, for example, the the ongoing debate about defence spending. And when you look at the big power, the other big power, China, what do you think are the options or or where do you think politics is heading in terms of squaring up to China? How would you describe the challenge for Japan's current leadership? I think they're just going
0: to carry on pretty much, uh, like Jeff said, carry on with The business that Abe sort of started basically, Uh, like Kishi's expanding defence and everything. Where is it going to go? It's a difficult question, but I think the constitutional revision is going to be definitely be a huge topic. I mean, the constitution was drafted by the United States uh, during the uh, Allied occupation. It was drafted within a week. And uh, both the Americans and the Japanese thought that um, we can just change it if it's necessary. But that never happened. <laughs> never, never been revised in 75 years. So I'm not sort of saying we should change the constitution. But I think the populace should start actually learning the history, how it was created. And they have to own democracy themselves. For them to do that, they have to learn it. And they have to have an informed decision because if the constitution is revised, referendum is a necessity. So it is very important that the populists start to think about what the principle of democracy, what it means to them.
1: I think that's a really good note on which to end and a challenging note as well. This has been a fascinating conversation. Satana, Jeff, thanks for joining us. That was Satana Suzuki and Jeff Kingston. I've been Philippa Thomas. You've been listening to Intelligence Square.
2: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion, and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.